Do you find yourself waking up to text that you don't remember sending? Do you ever wake up naked next to someone and you don't know their name? Do you find that your Uber drivers often wear cop outfits and force you to ride in the back? If this sounds like you, then have we got a show for you. Today we have Bob German with us. I'm going to let Bob introduce himself to the world. Hey, y'all. Uh, yeah, Bob German here. I'm excited to do this. Um, congratulations to everybody who is listening to this podcast. If you're um, a younger person um, in and around the state and you found this podcast, I would say um, kudos to you because it just tells me that you want to find um, how to live your best life. And I think that's, that's what I'd like to share with you all today. Um, I don't know the age group of the people who are normally on this, but maybe I might be one of the older folks. Um, and, uh, and that's good because, you know, I grew up in a different era and I grew up in a different time. Um, I truly, the whole idea of being gay um, was foreign to me. Like I just, I had no idea that I was gay. Um, I just knew that I was different. Um, I knew that I was the little kid who was in Boy Scouts who wore polyester pants and everybody <laughs> else wore blue jeans, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, you know, we didn't have much money and mine came from Kmart and then the kids would make fun of me and so then I would like cut the tag out. And, you know, so I don't know that, I just knew I was different. I just felt different. Um, but, but, but there wasn't access to gay people. You know, once in a while, somebody would be on the Phil Donahue show, you <laughs> right. know, or some old, old talk show. And um, my mother had this book about uh, sex, the joy of sex or something. I don't remember what it was. And there was a chapter on homosexuals. And they hung out at the Greyhound bus station, the book said. And so <laughs> I was like, oh, well, I mean, I guess that's where I'll have to go. But I just, the dots didn't connect um, for me, certainly in high school, and really not even in college. Uh, um, I knew that the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue came out once a year. And like all the guys in my fraternity house, like they were so into this. Mm-hmm. And I was like, eh, it just meant nothing to me. But I literally had no idea that I was gay. Um, and I didn't until I got my first job, I graduated college, I got my first job, I moved off to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and there was a park, and I would go bike riding all the time on my bike. And in this park, there was the street, and all the men would sit in their cars. And I had no idea why I kept riding my bike to the park, right? (laughs) And then I would like look at the men, and literally, Curtis, I still had no idea 
that I was gay. It just wow. didn't, it did not compute. It didn't connect. And then one Sunday afternoon, I was riding my bike up and down the street. And when I say I ride my bike to the park, girl, I spent hours riding my bike <laughs> up and down the street up and, down, yeah. and just no idea. And then one day they were playing volleyball. And then everybody was very uh, flamboyant and wearing rainbow color. Well, I don't even know if rainbows were a thing then, but they were just like, and I was like, oh, oh, these are gay men. And uh, a few days later, um, I decided that I couldn't really talk to any of them on my bike because nobody else was up there in bikes. And I didn't want to drive my car because I was sure somebody from work would recognize my car in the gay park. So I put on my Sony Walkman and I put on my very best Karen Carpenter <laughs> tape and I walked up to this park. And, and anyway, I don't want to belabor it too much, but my first gay experience was in this park. And some poor guy, I'm 22, this guy was probably 24. I thought he was like so much older than me. And he's sitting on his car, hood of his car, and I go up to him and I'm like, I need to talk to you. And he's like, you know, he wanted to like do something. And I'm like, no, 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 I like really need to talk to you. And I'm like, why do I keep coming here? Am I gay? I'm like tears running down my right. eyes. I'm like having my full on emotional meltdown. And he keeps looking at his watch and he's like, oh no, I do not need all this. Um, but anyhow, he was, that was my first little gay experience. So he took me in my, in, he took me into his car and, um, and we very quickly discovered that I was gay. And, um, <laughs> I don't know, you know, that was my first gay experience. And then, uh, I went back to that park. I met somebody else. They took me to a gay club and, um, I went to a gay club in Pittsburgh and I walked into that bar and I immediately knew that I had found my people and everybody was wearing blue jeans and white t-shirts and the music was thumping and I was just like oh it's amazing <laughs> this is what I have been missing this is the, this is the thing and uh, so anyhow I mean that was really kind of the answer um it was it was a different time than um you know AIDS HIV AIDS was such mm -hmm. a big thing and um promiscuity maybe was different um um, for me, anyhow, a, a, a huge part of my story, a huge part of my journey is um, to deal with my sexuality. You know, I turn to a, a lot of alcohol and I turn to a lot of uh, other things. And so a huge part of my coming out story involved, you know, getting really drunk. And then when you got really, really drunk, you know, all those thoughts of, of you know, HIV kind of left you. But then, you know, it, it was just a different, it was a different time. Yeah, but... but you're actually, I would say, our first guest that didn't know that they were gay in terms of, like, from a young age. Um, so most of our guests, I would say, like, anywhere from, like, 8 to 13, like, they knew they were gay. They, And you seem to, like, not have experienced that until you went to these parks and stuff like that. Can you kind of speak on that? I truly did not know I was gay. Um, but I will tell you that going back to maybe, like, when I was... I honestly, I didn't even masturbate until I was like 15 years old. Wow. Okay. And um, my best friend, Robbie, was, we were studying, we were having a little study party at my house and he had come over, me, Robbie, and another friend of ours. And Robbie uh, had discovered masturbation and he was like doing it quite excessively. And so he was talking to us about that. And then I was <laughs> like, 
what is this masturbation thing you talk of? And so he sort of described it. And then I was like, hmm, well, I shall have to try this. And, <laughs> um, and so I did. And um, not with him. But I did try it. And um, uh, my fantasies, I would always start out with wanting to fantasize about sex with the girls, somebody from my class, whatever. But it always finished up with me thinking about a guy. Right. But the dots just didn't connect. And then I would be like, tomorrow when I do this, I'm not going to... I knew that that was wrong. Like, the way I was brought up, thinking about a guy was wrong. And... um, You were told that was wrong. (laughs) I was told that that was wrong. And and the family that I grew up in um, made fun of anybody who had any kind of effeminate behaviors but there was no tv there were no tv shows i know i remember once there was an episode there's this the uh, archie bunker all in the family was a was a trend-setting show and and that show took on a lot of social challenges and so there was uh, an episode on that show with um where archie saved this woman with mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and then she turned out to be trans and, oh, wow. and, and I mean, that was like, you know, we're talking like in the, in the mid seventies and that was like this bigoted Archie Bunker, like, you know, he thought yeah. he was a hero and then he saved this trans woman. And then Edith was like, that was his wife. And she's <laughs> like, oh my God, Archie's going to flip it. Cause the woman comes to their house to thank him. Oh, wow. And, and, and anyhow, so there was little snippets of things like that, but it, but there just wasn't it, it for me, anyhow, the world that I was in. There wasn't that exposure. So, yeah, being gay was wrong. And, um, and, uh, and, and, and I think like for me, like, and sorry, nieces, nephews that listen to this show, you're about to learn something about me, but I think that's a very common experience in terms of like, for me, the first things that I watched was like girls gone wild. Like that was like a, you know, a thing that you watched as a, adolescent coming to terms with your sexuality um but you know i didn't get enjoyment out of it like there was a like you watched it you did what you did but you didn't get like true fulfillment um well, but there was hot guys on that show there you know, were and that's what i would like zero, <laughs> that's what i would zero in on you right? know but i would be like Oh, I remember there was this show, James at 15, and Lance Kerwin, I think, was the actor's name. And I had a crush on him. And Mm -hmm. I would, like, plan out my homework schedule to make sure that I was free. You know, you didn't get to, you know, download it or you didn't get to tape it. There was no VCR. So it's like, if you missed a show, you missed a show. And I was not going to miss Lance Kerwin. And then James turned 16. And then there was weird things like that. But honestly, honestly, the idea of being gay was so shoved, so repressed, so far back in my being um, that it didn't it didn't come to light of day. Yeah. Um, I remember in college there was in my fraternity house, there was rumored there was evidently I did not know this, but there was a at the at the. student center there was a bathroom that was quite cruisy and i am very disappointed that i didn't know about this um back when i was in college and i could have found all the college boys um but anyhow uh one of our fraternity brothers got caught uh in that bathroom and um 
and it was a big drama in the fraternity house. And what are we going to do with Larry? You know? Oh, wow. And I was not going to be Larry. Right. Yeah. I was not I was gonna, scared. Yeah. I was not going to be that guy. And, uh, and so anyhow, you just, and that's amazing how times have changed. Like my first boyfriend was my fraternity brother. <laughs> so like, it's totally different. Like in comparison from the eighties to now, like, Nowadays, I think a lot of fraternities are very accepting. Um, I'm from Kappa Sigma, and literally the Nationals just posted on their Facebook, like, Happy Pride Month. Like, it's just crazy how things have changed in a matter of a decade. Um, it, it's it's great. My fraternity happened to be one of the first ones. I was a, really? sigma, I was a SIG app, Sigma Phi Epsilon. Yeah. I'll tell you a really quick story about Larry. So I told you I went to the park, right? That was a year after I graduated. I went back to the fraternity house for his graduation weekend. There was a big party and and I drank a whole lot. And Larry and I wound up sitting next to each other in one of the rooms. And little by little, everybody else kind of left the room. And then, you know, we started doing the foot thing, Mm -hmm. you know, because Larry was like, (laughs) and anyhow, um, I equated my sexuality with sex, like, you know, it it was just so intertwined. And so I was like, oh, he's gay. He must want to have sex with me. Okay. Larry was so kind and so sweet to me. And he was like, no, we don't want to do that. He goes, I know that you're going to need, he goes, I know that you need a friend. And he says, I would like to be your friend instead of like the sex. And, uh, and he helped put me to bed that night. And, <laughs> um, and Larry hasn't totally left my life. Probably 15 years later, I'm at a wedding uh, uh, one of the early gay weddings for my friend Brian and Alan, and I'm sitting at a table. I used to have hair. I did not have <laughs> Believe hair. it or not, folks. <laughs> Larry did not recognize me. I did not recognize Larry, but we're sitting at a table, and um, we start talking about where we went to college, and it's like, oh, I went to Miami. Oh, I went to Miami. Oh, I was in a fraternity. Oh, I was in a fraternity. Anyhow, it turns out that this guy at the wedding was Larry who was sitting at my table and we wow. got to connect like 15 years later. So anyway. that is awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's in terms of fraternities, like a lot of people think that they can't join them because they're gay or like those kind of things. And I, for our viewers, which are mainly adolescents or people that are coming to college and from rural areas, like I want them to know, like both of us are fraternity people like we, and that was one of the best experiences of my life. I don't know how you felt about it, but I loved it. Yeah, uh, and and I will tell you that my fraternity brothers now all know I'm gay. Mm-hmm. Um, next week I'm going to Colorado. I'm going to go hiking in the mountains. I'm staying with my best friend and his wife, yeah. and um, and their son. And we're going to like go hiking around Colorado. So, you know, if you're young and you're, it's not for everybody. But I True. thoroughly, I, I loved my fraternity days. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's get into, um, so you went to college, you, you've done all these things, so you, you've come into terms with yourself. How did your family experience that? What was their reaction whenever you finally did come out to them? Not good. So I probably did not come out to my family until I was 30. So it took a minute. Um, yeah. You know, if I started first doing my little gay stuff when I'm 22, and, and um, a, a lot of my journey involves suicide. So, um, I was extremely suicidal, um, as I was starting to finish college. And then as I was starting to work, suicide was just like a huge, I say a part of my story, but I didn't really ever under, 
understand how I could possibly be who I needed to be. How could I be? I never saw where I could be happy. I never saw that I could live the life that was pre-programmed for me to live. Um, and, uh, and I'm very grateful. I found, uh, I found some good therapists. I found a bad therapist. Um, my very right. first therapist um, tried to sleep with me. Um, Not unusual. I played a game where I wanted to see if I could get him, and then I got him. And I really wish that he had said, what are you doing? And let's talk about what's going on. But, but I found another therapist who turned out to be great. And, uh, and I really credit him with saving my life. And, um, and he helped give me the courage to face my family. And uh, so anyhow, I was 30 years old and then, you know, I have to do it as high drama. And so I called them and I was like, I need, I, I lived in Louisville. They live in Cincinnati. I'm like, I need to come up and see you guys. There's something that I need to talk to you about. You know, we have to, anything worth doing is worth really making quite melodramatic. And so, um, so anyhow, I told them and uh, my mother was a social worker and uh, she told me that she was going to have to quit her job if this is how her family turned out. Um, my dad um, was actually quite kind and loving um, and said it didn't take a brain surgeon to figure this out uh, <laughs> because I just, you know, I was not dating anybody. Like right. I just, you know, my, my I, I wasn't dating anybody ever. And, uh, um, but I worked in a family business. It was really quite, quite difficult. Um, when I first came out, um, but I'm very grateful for the support that I have, that I had I, I, my therapy and I was in a therapy group. Um, so, so my therapy group was super supportive of me and, um, now are you an only child? I'm not, I'm the youngest of four. How were siblings? So I had told my sister before I told my parents. So my mm -hmm. sister had moved off to Boston and then she married uh, a guy and he was from New York City. And so I sort of felt like they were like cool. Yeah. And, and they were super supportive. Awesome. And um, um, I don't really remember, don't really remember telling my other brothers. I think it just sort yeah. of came out. I have a brother who today, he and I love each other. But um, he and I think very different, differently, ideologically, politically. We're on two different spectrums. And... Um, um, and that's often, like, that's often how it happens. Like, you tell one of your family members and then the rest find out from that family member well, rather than getting the opportunity to tell them yourself. And for, and that's something I want to tell our listeners is make sure you tell the right family members first so that they can be your, um, support system, you know, cause some family members are not going to be supportive. My brother. So Louisville has a fairness ordinance, and I think a lot of other mm -hmm. little cities around Louisville, uh, uh, around the state, Kentucky, have, have them now. Mm -hmm. And uh, But anyhow, when Louisville was fighting to get the fairness ordinance, and it was probably the early 90s, um, my brother was circulating a petition against the wow. fairness ordinance. And where we worked together, it was a factory setting, and so so... I had a quality control person who was a lesbian. She knew I was gay and I knew she was a lesbian. So she brought this petition to me 
I hadn't told my brother I was gay, but at this point I had told my mom and dad. Anyhow, I stormed into his office and I took that petition and I tore it up and I threw it at him <laughs> in little pieces. And I was like, never again are we ever going to do something like that. And I walked out. He still didn't know I was gay, but he was like, holy fuck, what just, what just happened right. here, right? Yeah. And, um, and anyhow, that did start to change things. Obviously, he then called somebody in the family, but I don't remember telling my brother. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the, like Harvey Milk's like famous line is like if they know you then they're more likely to understand you know like and you know he would always say you know you've got to come out to your family you've got to be strong enough to do that so that they understand like this is part of their world too. It was super important. My brother, so I was born Jewish. My 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 religion, I, my faith. I am Jewish. Um, my brother converted when he met his wife to a Southern Baptist. Wow. And he became a preacher. And anyhow, one thing, because I had the courage to have a relationship with the family, um, he did, uh, he got installed on the day that he got installed as the pastor of in church. He invited me and my husband, at that time my partner, wow. to that event at that church that with huge. those people. And so that did not happen overnight. Mm -mm. but it did happen over time. What was dating life like after that point? So, you know, my dating career back then was really... It really is a career, people. It was a dating <laughs> career. Like I had a dating career. Job, I yeah. was a full-time job for me. Um, do you know, uh, so, so my gay circles back then, everything happened in the bars. Um, yeah. I mean, it just did. I mean, it, you were straight by day and gay by night. Mm -hmm. And um, and that is not all bad. I, I'm grateful for where we are today. But I will tell you, there was something special about working all day in the straight world and then walking into the connection at nighttime and yeah. seeing your folks um, and, and, and the stress and uh, just letting it all go. But um, But that was the environment where I met all the people that I dated. And the bad thing about that was that's where I met all the people that I dated. And so I met them today. And then next week, you know, we're picking out China patterns, right? Like we're ready to move in together. But then the week after that, you know, either me or them were on to the next person that they met that night. Yep. And so, you know, a lot of my... Taking your uh, Subaru back to the, the car lot. Yeah, right? unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, you know, a lot of my early dating, a lot of my early dating was, was really simply that. Really, yeah. really hookups, basically, that lasted for a week or two. Yeah. Um, I didn't really have any long established relationships. Um, At until, what point uh, did you come to Louisville? So I had come out in Pittsburgh, and then I moved to Cincinnati, mm -hmm. and then I worked in Cincinnati a couple of years. And then I moved to Chicago, and Chicago was divine for a oh, young, yeah. for a young budding gay person. Um, but it was also bad. It was a big city. It was hard to meet people. It was hard for me to have good close connections. Yeah. Um, and then I moved to Louisville, and uh, so I moved to Louisville in 1989. Um, then yeah, the first, um, the first real solid dating that I did is the person I'm married to. Yeah. And, and, uh, he had only dated three people and, um, and we met 
And uh, so we let's, didn't. Let's we, hear we, that story. We did not meet. So so interestingly enough, we did not meet in a bar. Um, and uh, we actually met. I had a roommate who I loved, and we would go to the bars all the time. And Ron was beautiful, and he was always bringing home the men. And um, but anyhow, I got to a point where I, I didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to to change that in myself. And um, so Ron moved out. And a couple years later, I wanted to invite Ron over to kind of like reconnect. And he asked if he could bring a friend. And I was like, yeah, sure, bring a friend. So he brought the cutest little boy. Oh, my gosh. Um, so Brent Brent is uh, nine years younger than me. And he had just moved to Louisville from Paducah um, six weeks before. And uh, he walked in the house, and we just kind of like connected. Yeah. And uh, so I called Ron up, and I was like, hey, that guy you brought over, what's going on with you two? And he's like, nothing. And he's like, you want to ask him out? I was like, yeah, I want to ask him out. So, um, yeah, so we did. And uh, What was that like, him coming from Paducah? Did you experience any struggles from him, like coming out to his family and stuff like that? Did you go through that with him? Yeah, so um, when we met, he had come out to his mom, but he had not come out to his dad. Um, his dad, uh, was super religious. His dad was church of Christ. Uh, his dad dragged Brent, uh, and his brother and sister to church, you know, multiple times a week. Um, Brent grew up in an environment where homosexuality was absolutely a sin, right? Like it was bad. Um, but Brent's dad loved coming up to Louisville and staying the night with us. And he didn't know really? really what was like going on, but yeah, it's separate rooms. <laughs> he got to, he got to um, meet me. Yeah. Okay. And then finally, um, the the first Christmas, Brent and I had been together a couple years before I was finally invited to Paducah for Christmas. But Brent still had not come out to his dad, mm. so Brent's sister went up to the dad and was like, "You know, Brent is." And his dad's like, "Is what?" And he's like you know Brent's gay. And his dad's like, Holly, I'm not stupid, you know? <laughs> and so they had been coming up. Yeah. And um, it was very sweet. Um, we were not allowed to sleep in the same bedroom. Yeah. But nobody, Brent's siblings, until they were married, were not allowed to sleep in the same bedroom. Yeah. And I'll just tell the story really quick. So Brent's grandparents, John Ed and Lunell, Okay. And John Ed was a firefighter and a farmer in Paducah. Very stereotypical. Bib overalls, relatively large type guy. But he made sure that we knew. He said to Holly, he said, I want you to tell your brother, Brent, that any friend of Bob's is a friend of ours. Wow. And is allowed to sleep in our house. Because we didn't really know how things were going to go with John, uh, with, with, with Brent's, with Brent's yeah. dad, but Brent's dad absolutely loved us. And, um, one of the really sad things, um, as he was dying, one of the things that, that he did towards the end of his life was he, he talked to Brent and he said that he was, sorry, I'm a little choked up. He said that he was sorry, um, that he had his own internal struggles. Um, one of the great things that happened, um, we had a, a Passover dinner every year in my faith. And um, one year we invited Brent 
his parents and my parents to the dinner together. And it's the only time our parents ever met. And Brent's dad was sitting with my dad on the sofa. And Brent's dad asked my dad, how did you accept? How did you, um, how did you get past the whole gay thing? And my dad said, you know, they're our sons and we have to love them. That is not where we started out at. You know, I'm talking these are 10 and 12 years into, right. you know, but, um, but I can tell you today, um, even through all of this, our parents loved us. It get, we had to give them time. Um, Let's talk about that. So yeah. obviously we, we know we're, I mean, I knew I was gay from a very young age, probably five years old. Um, How you, could you not? Right, right. Like, so <laughs> flamboyant, <sorry>. right? <laughs> so, I, but I probably knew since five years old that I was like or experienced that uh, attraction towards males. Um, you obviously had a little bit of later like coming to terms with it in terms of like self-identification. Um, but our families don't know. Like they they experience this person. They the normal is being straight. I mean. 90% of the world is straight, you know, so they, they experience that they, and I think a lot of times, like, for instance, my mom, whenever I came out, it wasn't the fact that I was gay that was upsetting to her. It was the fact that she knew I would live a difficult life. And so did your family kind of experience that same thing? Y- yes. So that was... Um, so, so my parents' fears, they had a couple fears. One was that I would get AIDS and die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially during that time. Like, the, that's, that's something, and I do want to speak to that specifically because nowadays, like, we don't have as much of fear of that, but there's still this fear of, like, discrimination. But back then, it was like, it could be seriously deadly for your it, life. It was a death sentence. I right. mean, honestly, it was just a different era and um, and uh, so, so so that was that was definitely one of their concerns, and their other was that I would never be able to be happy. Okay, but mm-hmm. an interesting thing I talked about the dinner, the Passover dinner. We invited my parents every year to the Passover dinner, and they got to meet our friends, and then the next night they would go to the Passover dinner at my sister's house, who was married with two kids. And they loved those dinners. But what they came to discover was they loved the dinners. They loved the gay dinners. They loved the <laughs> dinners at our house. Mm-hmm. And um, that went a really long way towards helping my parents change their view. Yeah. And um, while we don't have kids, like that was something that my mom really you have was. cats. We do have cats. We have cats. <laughs> but, you know, my, my mom didn't think you could be happy if you didn't have kids. Like, like her life was, oh, you got married, you had kids, had kids, you raised the kids, you did all the things with your kids, and that's what makes you happy. And she couldn't fathom our life being happy. Right. But as we start to let them in, we didn't shove it on them, we just invited them. Um, I, I will say one thing, I did have to shove something on them. After Brent and I had been together for two years, they were continuing to just invite me to birthdays 
or just invite me to Mother's Day or just invite me to Father's Day. And after a couple years, I went to one of those birthdays and I said, here's the deal. I'm not going to shove mine and Brent's relationship on you all. But if we've been together for a couple years, if you would like me at the next family event, you will invite the both of us. Right. And guess what? They did. Sometimes it takes that stance of like, you have to be very vocal. You have to be very affirmative. Like we are a couple, we are together and we have to, if you want me, you're going to get both of us because you're one. Like but I didn't have that strength. I did not, when I first came out, you know, I didn't have that strength. Right. So I guess if, if, if our audience here today is young people and maybe it's young people who are living in their parents' house, maybe it's young people who want to go to college, um, they, they need some financial assistance, whatever, right. you know, they may not have that strength. And so I guess if there's something I'd like to give in this message today um, is patience sometimes Absolutely. is okay. Um, I have found that sometimes the, the way my life has worked out is sometimes I just have to do what I have to do and live my best life. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I have to push the envelope. I had to tear up the letter with my brother. I had to have this conversation with my parents. Um, we don't live in a perfect world. You know, like it's, it's not perfect. You're not going to just be able to come out to everybody and everybody be accepting. You know, it's, it's a hot topic issue. But I think there comes a point and in which you do have to stand up for yourself. And I think that's, that's where you reached with Brent's family and and uh, your family and and that's a great thing like you finally reached a point to where you were both together you could go to events together you go to family outings together and i still think that that's a struggle with everybody these days you know like for instance my family um there was one christmas where i was not able to go to and i wasn't even dating the person that i brought home but he was also gay so because me and this other oh. person were gay, it's automatically assumed like they're dating. We don't want them around our kids. Yeah. Um, so like that's that is a big struggle in terms of dealing with family, dealing with those kind of outings. And you do have to be patient. You know? And that's why I think it's super important for me to have found my people. It's super important for me to have found my friends who are supportive um that i that i can hang out with and you know if you're young you're listening to this podcast you know hopefully there's avenues and places for you to connect even if it's just online right. where you can meet some other folks and say this christmas is gonna suck because i really want to bring da 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 and i can't even tell them that i'm gay um but but to have those people that i could talk to and share it yeah one of the things, actually, one of the first times we met, we met before that, but the second time I ever met you actually was Feast on Equality. Yep. Which is an amazing thing at UofL that they do for, you know, it, it started as a gay family, basically. It started as something like it was a small for outing. For Thanksgiving. It started mm -hmm. as a Thanksgiving dinner for the kids who weren't welcome home. Right. And, and so like we met there and it's turned into this huge outing now, like it's a huge fundraiser, um, amazing place to be. But I think it is like we, we experience that we, we, we do these family outings as a gay community 
which is very different than I think straight culture. Like you don't, you have friends giving, you have stuff like that, but gay people, we really do like join together for those events. Um, and it's because we're often left alone. And, um, with that, I want to move into why we really brought you here today. Okay. And that is, Uh-oh. you are how many years sober now? Okay, I am 29 years clean and sober. 29? Yeah, so that means 29 years in a row with uh, with no breaks. That's... That's a long time. I'm 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 31. I'm going to announce that to my my audience. <laughs> this is the first time I've ever announced my audience to the age. I'm 31, and so you have been sober pretty much my entire life. Yeah. In gay community, that's incredibly hard. I mean, super hard. Because in our community, you meet people at bars. That is our safe space. How do you manage your day to day life? How did you manage to meet you know? Brent, during that time period, so I've been sober for half of my life. I'm 58 years old. I've been sober for 29 years. Um, sobriety is the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Um, it is not for everybody, okay? But um, I think I talked a little bit about my suicide. I think I talked about just my mental, my mental health. Um, I'm complicated. Like my head is complicated and I was always on the squirrel cage. If any of you guys know what that means, I was just, I could never quiet my brain down. I could never calm myself down. Um, and drugs and alcohol, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I told you when I would walk into that connection, that was a bar that used to be here in Louisville. Oh my God, it was great. And, um, and I'd have that first cocktail or two and the sweat and the boys and the dance floor. I mean, it was not just inebriating, it was intoxicating. I mean, it was, it was wonderful. And um, if I had been able to stop my drinking at that point where I was on the dance floor and really having fun, you know, it would have been great. My problem was I was on the dance floor really having fun, and then I thought, well, if I'm really having fun, if I have one more, I'll really, really have fun. And then if I have one more after that, oh, my gosh, this will be the best night ever. And unfortunately, my nights crossed this place where they were no longer fun, and then they just turned into, um, you know, a lot of heartache, a lot of... I was the guy that would get thrown out of the bar because I'd had the fight with the boyfriend who I'd met the week before. Remember, we were picking out China patterns, but then we're (laughs) drunk and then I'm flirting with somebody else and then he comes over and he gets mad at me. I was always that couple that was having the cat fight in front of the bar, walking out the door. Um, I talked a lot about the suicide and my therapist and, um, and that was where we really started exploring is alcohol helping me or is alcohol hurting me? You know, and I used to think of the alcohol as my friend. Like I used to think the alcohol was the only thing that really made life bearable. Okay. I didn't see it as the problem. And uh, anyhow, I was, it was suggested to me to go to some Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. Um, And I did. And, um, um. we have a saying in Alcoholics Anonymous. Who, suge- who suggested that? Um, 
honestly, I, I'm going to the therapy group, right? And I'm paying mm. all this money and I'm not being honest with them. Right. Huh. So I'm going there and one day I was in the therapy group and I was telling everybody what they should and shouldn't do. And there was this guy named Jake and Jake had been sober for five years and I'll never forget it till the day I die. Jake looked at me and he said, well, what about you? I wish Jake was gay. He would have said something like, and what about you, Mary? <laughs> what about you, Mary? Right. But Jake was totally straight and uh, he didn't say it that way. But, but he did say, what, well, what about you? And then I was like, what about me? What? What? And he said, well, what about you? And that was the first time that I ever got honest with anybody about how I drank and used alcohol. And, uh, and anyhow, I made a commitment to that therapy group that night that I would go to some, some recovery meetings. And um, I, I'm lucky. I, the recovery meetings worked for me. My life was so miserable and I was so unhappy and... Um, and I kept putting myself, you know, I keep bringing up this theme about HIV and AIDS, but I would get drunk and then I just continued to put myself at high risk. And, um, and guys, it truly was in 1990, 1991, it truly was a death sentence. Like, you know, it, 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 it truly was. Um, and, um, and anyhow, so... You know, I just started going to the meetings. I, there was uh, several uh, LGBT um, sober meetings in Louisville. Um, interestingly enough, one of them used to be at the Connection. So, you know, where... Wow. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, That's... yeah, it was in the bar in the Connection, and it was before the, the bar opened, and they had a meeting there. And, um, and I'm very grateful for George and Ed Stinson who, um, who allowed us to, to, to have that meeting there because that is amazing. There, there were not safe places, you know, and, and, and that was a safe place. And, uh, and anyhow, so I just went on that journey and, and, and it's worked, it's worked really well. I'm still super involved in, in recovery. And, um, I just got back last week for friends, uh, four younger friends from Louisville. And these are guys all in their, in their twenties. Um, came up to Chicago with me and there was a sober weekend and we did workshops and we went to Chinatown for Chinese food. And, and these were all guys who were like, you know, how do I not live in the bars? And, um, and we had just a, we had a great weekend. How has your mental health changed in terms of since you have gone through recovery, how has the mental health changed? I know you talked about, you know, you had suicidal thoughts, you had all those kind of things. What's it like now? I do not have suicidal thoughts today. Um, I, I got to tell you, I, I have an amazing life. I mean, I really have this crazy, amazing life. Um, it is not always crazy and amazing. Um, last year in my work, I got sued. And uh, it was a big lawsuit, and somebody wanted many millions of dollars out of me. And it was really easy for me to get up into my head and start thinking, gosh, did I do something wrong? Did I do something wrong? And, you know, growing up as that little gay kid that didn't even know he was gay and that message of I'm no good and I'm less than and I'm a bad person, when something like that happens, it's really easy for me to turn that tape on and start thinking I'm a really bad person. I've done something horrible. It was really hard for me to find my goodness and my strength I didn't, in that lawsuit, I did not do anything wrong. I really, truly did not do anything wrong. So you ask, how's my mental health? Um, I was able to navigate through something like that. 
without losing my shit completely. Yeah. Right. And, but I did it because I have all my world today. I have lots of sober friends. I have lots of friends who aren't sober. Um, today, if I'm in the right frame of mind, I absolutely will go down to play bar. I will absolutely go out to, to a bar on, on Bargetown road and have a club soda before I go out to dinner or, or, or social with my friends. Um, After 30 years, do you still find it difficult? To not drink? Uh-huh. Every once in a while. Every once in a while. Um, if we're out at a really nice dinner and... Um, so Brent drinks. Sometimes uh-huh. Brent drinks a lot. Okay? And um, sometimes I feel left out. And sometimes I feel less than. Sometimes I feel like I'm no fun. Like, gosh, I'm the, I'm the deadbeat. I'm the drag. You know, I'm bringing them all down. Um, but what I've learned is that I need to take care of Bob. Right. And if I take care of Bob and, and, and what does that mean? It means that, um, maybe if I'm not having any fun at the bar, I go home, but I don't have to have everybody else go home with me. Like I could say, Brent, you guys are having a good time tonight. I think I'm done and I'll go home. Now, I may stop and get a pint of ice cream. I got, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I may get a little pint of ice cream. A little something, and, yeah. and I may need to pick up the phone and call somebody in my support group, right, that just mm-hmm. says, gosh, you know, I'm a drag. Um, but, but the next day when I'm feeling good and everybody else is kind of like not feeling so good, I'm like, yeah, I made the, I made the right height, you know, made the right, made the right call. So. What do you suggest for somebody who is, who feels they have a problem with drinking? What's the next steps for them? Well, I will tell you, to our audience right here, because of Zoom, there are so many sober recovery LGBT um, options mm-hmm. today for somebody. Um, I think there's, a, I can't remember the name of it, Gay and Sober. Um, I think if you just Googled something like Gay and Sober, and, and you could find so many different meetings in places that you could go to. Um, there's some great literature. There's actually a really great um, LGBT um, pamphlet that, that Alcoholics Anonymous has put out that, that has, you know, gives you all sorts of resources. And um, I think in our community, alcohol is a huge part of our community. And, um, and I don't begrudge it. Like I love the f- people who can have fun, and and I'm happy that they get to go do that. I don't have to to um, I'll use the word criticize. I don't have to criticize. I don't have to judge. I don't have to 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 you know shove what works for me onto somebody else, right? Um, if you're young, if you're not sure, here's the suggestion that was made to me. Why don't you try going to 10 meetings? And why don't you try not to use in between those 10 meetings and see if your life feels any better? And if your life doesn't feel any better, that's great. You know, go back to what you were doing. Right. And if your life feels better, if your life feels different, Maybe you'll uh, continue to, to, to be involved. And, and there's all sorts of different recovery options. It doesn't just have to be Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, 
and, and I will tell you, I, I've never done these drugs, but there's, there's crystal meth anonymous. There's, you know, um, narcotics anonymous. There's uh, other avenues of recovery that don't even involve 12 steps. I, I would say, if I want to convey a message today, you know, if you're out there and you're struggling, whether it's using or just suicide or just mental health, if you have any way to find uh, some type of help, even if it's on the internet, and, and, and what do you do if you're a young person and you're in a little town and you can't go to your parents and say, I want to go see a therapist? You know, what do you do? Praise the Lord. Thank God there's the internet. Right. And, and maybe you can find, um, I, I think there's the Trevor Project, yes. um, which talks about it gets better, you know, and maybe you can hook up with somebody um, that can just guide you and help you. Mm -hmm. Like-minded people and and mentors that have been through that. I think that's incredibly important. How do you deal with negative influences? People that, you know, you, you go out to bars, obviously you deal with people that want to buy you shots or want to buy you things. How do you deal with those people? So it does happen. It does happen. Um, we'll be out and somebody will be like, come on, have a drink, have a drink, have a drink. And I'll be like, no, I, I'm just drinking club soda tonight. Come on, come on, have a drink. And then finally I'll look at them and I'll be like, I can't drink alcohol. And they'll be like, why not? I say, I'm allergic. And they'll be like, oh my God, you're allergic to alcohol. That's horrible. What happens? And I'll look right at them and say, I break out in handcuffs. Right? You know, um, uh, there, there, are, there are the bad influences. There are, um, look, sometimes... Sometimes you pick up that trick, right? And you're excited and you've met some guy and you know, you're, you're whatever. And then, um, then all of a sudden they bring out their little baggie with their little thing. And, uh -huh. and, and um, sometimes just finding that inner courage. And it's really hard folks to find that inner strength and say, you know, no, that's, that's not what I want to do. Sometimes we make a mistake. Okay. Sometimes I do, um, not using, but sometimes I'll just, um, um, I like to get up and go to the gym at eight 30. Right. I did that this morning. Okay. But some mornings I'm like, I'm blowing that off. And then I pay the price the rest of the day because I made a decision, but I, I can't sit there and beat myself up all day. All I can say is tomorrow I think I'll try to go to that 8.30 gym class. So, you know, I guess what I'm saying is I have to give myself a break. I've had to learn to give myself a break because it is hard. And um, whether it's alcohol or drugs or sex that I don't want to have or, or um, any of that. How many times did you experience relapse? I've never relapsed. Well, I changed that. I was sober for two weeks. Okay. <laughs> right. yeah. I was sober for two weeks and, um, and then I went to a graduation and there was wine and I just felt so uncomfortable that I didn't know what else to do, but pick up that wine. It's funny. I was at a, out with a group of sober folks last night and we were talking about this and I was like, my last drunk was a really good one. <laughs> like it was a really good one. And, um, but, but my last drink was like oh, a glass of wine. Like, oh my God. 
Um, but I have not relapsed. Um, but a lot of people do relapse. And on um, my very first meeting that I ever went to, there was this guy, David T., and David's passed away now. David talked about how he continued to drink and then keep trying to get sober. And he continued to drink and keep trying to get sober. And, and I guess what lesson I learned from him was just keep coming back. Just keep trying to find your best self. Um, and little by little, one day you might, and then one day you might stumble, right? And if I stumble in whatever it is, um, I got a choice. I can sit there and look at where I stumbled. Am I going to examine where I stumbled? Am I going to blame it on everybody else? Or am I going to say, yeah, there was a crack in the sidewalk. I didn't see it. I stumbled. I've scraped my knee. But I'm going to get up and start walking again. You know, Curtis, I've known you for a long time. And, uh, and I, I am so grateful that you're, that you're helping our young viewers in the state. Um, why don't you share with us um, what's your boogeyman in the closet? What's your, what's your um, I talked about being honest. So mm -hmm. give us an honest tidbit of, of, um, that you'd like to share. Sure. Um, that is a loaded one. That's probably the most loaded question I've ever had. <laughs> uh, as far as I would say, you know, I'm very self-reflective. I know my flaws. I, I know I'm not a perfect human being. Um, I think for me, one of the biggest things that I have struggled with over the course of my life was borderline personality disorder. Okay. Um, and I think a lot of LGBT people deal with this because it its root is abandonment, you know. And for me, I've been abandoned by a lot of people in my life. Um, so the worst times in my life are when relationships end. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it was in 2016, I, I tried to commit suicide. Um, that was probably the biggest boogeyman in my life uh, tell people it's the the best and worst day of my life um, worst day because of the way I felt best day because of the way it changed me and my view of the world um, this podcast would not exist if it hadn't been for that day um, my desire to give back to people that were like me um, people that you know so often in LGBTQ culture nowadays it seems like it's it's easy. You know, it's easy. You see gay TikTok, you see all these gay things around, you know, the internet. And it's still not easy for people in rural areas, people that deal with um, incredibly religious families, unaccepting families. We live in a red state, you know, <laughs> so um, you still, even if you don't want to, a lot of times you have those mental thoughts about there is something wrong with me. Yeah. And so by far my biggest boogeyman in life was, was dealing with that, dealing with abandonment issues. And finally you have to realize like 
there are so many people around me that, that love me, you know, even if I don't think it at the time, there are constantly people around me that love me that, that would be devastated if I wasn't here. So, and I don't want to get emotional. With That's that okay, question, but, but it loses, <laughs> its, it loses yeah. its power. It loses its power a little bit when we can share it. Yeah. And, um, and I, and I guess, you know, for our young folks, um, finding those people that you can share it with, um, whatever the it is. Yeah. And absolutely. You've got to find whether it's professional help or just your best friend, you know, you've got to be able to share those things and, and be open about them. Um, that's, what's going to save your life. You absolutely. Know? And we both, you and I both have gone through those suicidal issues. Um, and I think that's something that's very common with LGBTQ culture. Um, we have a, a high suicide rate in terms of young folks and that's the people we're speaking to today. So, Thank you for that question. <laughs> uh, I'm going to try not to not to, to be so you, deep. Give you a deep question. I feel like I've given you a lot of those this, this show. Um, but let's. My question to you is: How long have you? This is the preliminary question. How long have you and Brent been married? Uh, we got married in uh, 2013. 2013. And y'all were together a long time. Long so we've been before, together right? since 1995. Yeah. So. My question to you is obviously dealing with your sobriety and mm-hmm. he is a drinker. Mm-hmm. So you've got both sides of the spectrum and you're together. What has been the difficult times and what has been the great times about dealing with that relationship with sobriety? You know, I have found a wonderful person to be with and he is he is so loving and supportive and um and while he may drink sometimes he absolutely always lets me take care of myself right he is so supportive of my journey and um um when that lawsuit was going on we were talking about and i was like gosh you know if i lose we have to sell our house and all sorts of things and da 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 and he, he, he said, you know, I don't care about any of that. He says, if we have to live in an apartment, he goes, it doesn't matter to me. Right? That's great. And so, um, you know, some of our favorite evenings, um, you know, we love to cook. We've had you over to oh, the yeah. house. Um, they are amazing cooks, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> um, you know, my favorite evenings are those nights where we just have cooked a meal for ourselves. And we've baked some cookies and we're watching RuPaul and, you know, (laughs) the cat's sitting on the lap and, um, you know, I'm as happy doing that as I am, you know, going out with him. And, and I, and I love going out with him to, to watch a show or, or whatever. Um, and sometimes when he's drunk, like sometimes it happens, like he's out with our friends, we're on a vacation, you know they do get a little sloppy and I want to like slap them all across the face. (laughs) Like I really do. And, um, sometimes I just have to, um, live and let live. So, so how do I deal with it? You know, I'm not a perfect person. I would hate to date me. I'd hate to live with me. I'm a pain in the ass, right? Um, (laughs) I mean, I'm a little high maintenance. I'm a little high strung. And so sometimes, you know, how do I put up, I have to let him live his life. I'll close with this. I have to let him live his life. 
and he has to let me live my life. And then the two of us have our life together. And I think if I was looking for that one person who was going to make me whole, if I was looking for that person who I was like, this guy's perfect, he's everything, I would still be looking, right? Nobody is going to be 100% of everything I need. The great news is Brent is 91.7% of the things that I need. A huge thank you to Bob Gurman for being a friend and mentor in my own life, but also for speaking on one of the most vulnerable topics we will share with our listeners. We continuously on this show will encourage our listeners to never be ashamed of asking for help. When you think about it, one can be addicted to practically anything, from alcohol to sweets, from pain to pleasure, from thrills to simple love. One can even become addicted to exercise. At Weathering Rainbows, we hope that if you have an addiction that is affecting you in negative ways, that you are able to take the time to reflect upon it. And rather than feel bad that it exists, instead have the courage to ask for help. In reality, there's a broad spectrum of definitions as to what it means to be addicted to something. But ultimately, if it's causing chaos in your life and you reflect upon it, you have to decide whether it best serves you to continue it. If it is something you enjoy, then you have to balance that with how much pain it is causing you or others. Sometimes the joy of something isn't worth the after effects of pain. Unfortunately, over the years, the words addict and alcoholic have developed a negative connotation. So if those words bother you, then perhaps do as Bob does and simply acknowledge it as an allergy. For your Sunset Clarity advice this week, I will leave you with a tip that helps many people in reframing their mind to help with difficult times facing an old habit that they want to change. One way to create new habits is by acknowledging the situation and acknowledging that you would normally act a certain way in that situation. This makes you aware that you would not only normally act a certain way, but sends a signal to your mind long enough to not make an impulsive decision and thus act in that way. For instance, say you just go through a horrible breakup and it would normally lead you to a drinking rampage that may end up in cuffs. Try saying, if I was a drinker, then this is a situation I would drink. This acknowledges that situational awareness. Many of my clients have said that this gives them enough situational awareness that they can make a decision in line with the person that they want to be rather than succumb to those old habits. Finally, we hope that everyone is willing to help in these matters when someone requests help. You wouldn't encourage someone with an allergy to peanut butter to eat a PB&J sandwich. So maybe don't encourage a recovering alcoholic to take a salt tequila lime shot. Go get them a soda water or a mocktail rather than a cocktail when you order your next round. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for today. Don't forget to come on back now. I know we all love a little vibration, so if you're not already, go ahead and subscribe to this podcast. And we will surprise you on occasion with a new release vibration in your pocket. But in the meantime, if you find yourself alone, or crossing new horizons along the rainbow trail and you need a friend or even a laugh to get you through those dark and stormy nights holler on out to us at www.weatheringrainbows.com where you can find shelter in the blogs, videos, 
and other episodes that will hopefully keep you out of a whole heap of trouble. So until next time, y'all, giddy up, be true to yourself, and make the best of life. And wherever the wild tracks may lead you, may the rainbow always touch your shoulder.